Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. I'm Monty Larrick, and this is David Smith. Hello. The Executive Director of the Illinois Family Institute and Illinois Family Action. Our guest has struggled with anxiety, depression, alcohol, gambling, had some DUIs, uh, spent some time in jail for aggravated assault, but God intervened in your life. Dr. Carl Benzio is a board-certified psychiatrist. He's the co-founder and medical director of Honey Lake Clinic, which provides Christ-centered mental health treatment programs in a supportive healing environment in Greenville, Florida. Greenville, Florida sounds really nice here in uh, wintry (laughs) Chicago, Doc. Uh, He serves with the American Association of Christian Counselors. Dr. Benzio's Life Change Radio Minute airs daily on over 425 radio stations. What turned your life around, medication, modern psychiatry, or medical marijuana? (laughs) <laughs> well, I go with D, none of you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, when I was five years old, I laid on my heart decision-making. I was always interested in decision-making. Why do people do the things they do? Why do we make the decisions we make? I was a stutter, had a bad lisp, got made fun of, bullied, um, called names, people hitting me in the back of the head to get my words out for me, had to go mm. to speech therapy. Um, We moved around a lot when I was a kid. We had some struggles in the home. And um, there was uh, the $6 million man came out when I was a teenager. And I was like, wow, if we can make a bionic brain, we could figure out all these (laughs) decision-making stuff, run a zillion different simulations through it, figure out what works, what doesn't work. And I watched I Dream a Genie, saw Sidney Freeman and Bob Newhart's show. And, oh, that's a psychiatrist that does that. So I wanted to get into psychiatry. Well, there was a. I wasn't uh, thinking of the psychiatrist when I was a kid. I was thinking of Jeannie, but I'm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, if you can have anything you want, a wish, anything you want, um, what wish would you have? That's what our second grade Sunday school teacher asked us. And I wanted baseball cards and peanut butter milkshakes. And she said, um, <laughs> Well, there's a place in the Bible where God's a genie. And he asked Solomon, What would you wish for? And he wished for wisdom. Or she said, And godly decision making skills. And so that really turned my my head towards the Bible is, wow, maybe a Bible is the place where, you know, these kind of things are discussed. And um, as I went through my, my difficulties, as you, as you talked about, uh, end up in medical school and uh, was arrested for aggravated assault and in jail. And uh, Jesus said to me, Carl, you made me your Savior when you were a little kid, but you never made me the Lord of your life. Mm. If you make me the Lord of your life, I'm going to teach you things about decision-making that are going to renew your mind, transform your life, and help you transform other people's lives as well. And when I heard Lord, I heard authority. When I heard authority, I heard author. When I heard author, I realized that I had thought I was the most qualified person to write, how does Carl get the most out of life? I was the one that was supposed to write that book. I loved me more than anybody. I cared for me more than anybody else cared for me. I knew my weaknesses. I knew my strengths. I knew my future. I knew my desires. I knew what I wanted to get out of life. Nobody else knows that more than I do, so I'm the one who's most qualified. And when I heard Lord, authority, author, I realized, oh, wow, He knows me more than I know me. He loves me more than I know me. He cares for me more than I care for me. He knows my future better than I know my future. He knows my weaknesses, my strengths, those people that are going to come around me. 
And he's written the instruction manual, the B-I-B-L-E, the best instruction book for living every day. I was going to join in and sing with you there. <laughs> I've got little no kids. Yeah. And so um, with, the, with the Bible, I, I, I started thinking, okay, well, Jesus is the one with perfect decision-making skills. So let me go in and start studying his decisions in the, you know, in the New Testament and see, well, wh- what, what are the commonalities in his decisions? And so it was getting back to the faith, um, making God the Lord of my life. Obviously, it doesn't happen overnight. It's about a three- or four-year period with therapy, uh, my psychiatry training program, good Bible teachers that I had in the past, and starting to bring those things together and be sort of humble to the Holy Spirit, bringing all that past information and past knowledge. To me, the Bible was always just a history book about what happened 2,000 to whatever, 6,000 years ago, or what happens in the future. My parents were very prophecy-oriented, so they went to a lot of prophecy conferences, so understanding the Bible or looking at the Bible as a book from 1963-whenever I die. I didn't really see it as a dash book about, you know, pertinent to present-day life. And so at that point, that's whenever things turned around. I started seeing, wow, this is a book about everyday living. And uh, as I got into that decision-making process, looking into Jesus' decision, sort of then marrying all these scientific principles I was understanding about how God designed our mind to work, to me, all science is just studying what God made, understanding how he designed it to function, and then learning how to maximally steward that. And so to me, the coolest thing, partial being a psychiatrist, that he designed was the human mind. Mm. And so good science is just understanding the mind, how God designed it to work and how we can maximally steward it. And that's what psychiatry is learning. Well, how do we steward this mind so that we can be more godly decision makers? And that just took me on my path, and God has just blessed me with just incredible opportunities to um, utilize that, that blend of science and faith to be able to help people in their healing journeys. And your background gave you a compassion for those who are hurting or broken, dealing with addictions, and you wanted to help them. So, you know, when Jesus heals a couple lame guys, he uh, says, pick up your mat and walk. And you wonder, like, why does he say pick up your mat and walk? I mean, your mat is this dirty, stinky, probably feces-laden thing for lame guys, you know, and and he's been on the ground for years and years and years. You think he's like, hey, you're a new creation. Leave that old stuff behind and come on, you know, jaunt into the new life. But he says, pick up your mat and walk. And I think your mat is the reminder of who you were before Christ came into your life, what that disease state was. But then also, it's your story. It's your testimony to be able to share with others. He wants you to carry it. So this is what you want to show people. Hey, this is who I was, and this is what God has done in my life. And For the guy by the pool of Bethesda, the next passage, the next element is he goes into the um, into the church and he is met by a religious leader. And the religious leader sees his mat and says, "Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath?" (laughs) And so, so many times we're afraid to tell our story. We're afraid of what that our brokenness is, and so we walk around in church. And to me, the four-letter Christian F word is fine. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine too. And then we go our separate ways instead of. Are we really sharing with each other? Are we transparent? Are we authentic? Are we vulnerable? Do we really trust God to take care of me, if, even if that other person doesn't like me or doesn't like my story? Or, and so for me, I was always afraid to share my story. It's not, this, you know, it's not a very nice story, and certainly it's going to decrease the kind of um, power, prestige, uh, trustability, credibility I have as a, as a person who can help people. But what I found is I got pushed by God to share it one time when somebody was asking me, well, how do you know you're your curriculum works. I was like, well, it's helped a zillion people. Well, how do you know it actually works, though? Like, what's your longitudinal studies? And I'm not a researcher, so I don't know, but we've seen life turned around. But how do you know it really works? Finally, I felt God pushing me to just 
share your story. So then I shared my story. So this is how I know it works for me. This is what it did for my life. Afterward, it was you know, teaching you know, lots of people, hundreds and hundreds of people in this conference. Nobody wanted to talk to me about my curriculum, which is like really good. They just wanted to talk about the story. How does a scientist sort of use his faith or engage faith to help people in your own life and in other people's lives? And it was just this great conversation. But that's what happens when we share our mat. And I think God wants us to share our mat. But so many times people with these, especially psychological struggles, they're afraid, they're embarrassed. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of guilt. And we don't want to share them. But God wants to, us to, the comfort that we've been given, to push that comfort onto others. Well, who are you trading? Who are you treating at the Honey Lake Center? Are, are they pastors, uh, homeschool moms? Who's who's coming there? We have the whole gamut. We have people that are uh, homeless and heroin addicts that are scholarshiped in by. We have a lot of different ministries that uh, uh, provide scholarship monies for them, and then we have uh, prominent business leaders, uh, uh, ministry leaders, senior pastors, pastors of you know very large uh, uh, churches around the country. We have missionaries from all over the world. Uh, Salvation Army uses us whenever people are struggling and within their uh, ministry, a lot of different mission agencies. Um, It's hard to find Christian services in the United States. It's really hard to find Christian services outside of the United States uh, to help people. So people are... Uh, maybe they had a past addiction or pornography issue. Now they've come to Jesus. They've transformed their life. Now they're put in the mission field. But because of the stressors and the difficulties in the mission field, uh, they decompensate and all those things come back or postpartum depression or anxiety or different kinds of things like that. So they come back to the States and um, we treat all those different status and we put everybody together. Um, I think a lot of places will sort of segregate the pastors or the ministry leaders and it's sort of continues to perpetuate the idea that there's a separation, there's an expectation um, that I can't mix with others or that other people would see me differently or I'd lose my ministry yeah, if I did right. that. As oh, absolutely. To, hey, we're all the same on, you know, yeah. on the same playing field and have the same struggles, and it's important to share that and to break down those barriers. That sort of helps our own personal growth as well as the other people that get to see the pastor in a different way and be able to connect in as a real person. And you can only grow once you've acknowledged it, right? Mm-hmm. So how many people can you accommodate at your treatment center? About 70. At we have, one we have an adult we have an adult program, about 70 beds, and one, we have a girls' adolescent program of about 25 beds. And you're probably dealing with, an, uh, what is it, um, cutting um, and those kind of things. Self-harm. Bulimia. So about a third of our patients are addictions, and about two-thirds are just mental health only. So people with cutting or with PTSD. PTSD, anxiety disorders, and mood disorders, depression are our most prominent things. Are you seeing an increase for help, a need for help, increased need for help? We, We were in a behavioral health pandemic before COVID. Oh, really? I mean, opioid epidemic. That's a big word, though. Now, let's not glance over that. You're saying it's a pandemic. We were in a pandemic before COVID. Wow. Depression, anxiety, suicide, stress. Yeah. It's um, all spiking, Homosexuality, right? gender confusion, opioid addiction, um, opioid uh, overdoses. Overdoses were through the roof. Then COVID hit, and that accentuated everything, just put wow. everything. So now we're in a behavioral health disaster at this point. The nice thing, you know, no matter what you measure, depression, isolation, loneliness, suicide, everything has increased, addiction. Um, but what the nice thing COVID did was it sort of normalized that everybody lost something, was stressed by something, had disruption in their life. So it's not as odd for somebody to say, hey, I'm struggling. 
I need help. So now the doors have opened up for people to be able to come, be a little bit more forward to be able to accept help or to acknowledge that there's a struggle. There's still obviously some stigma and some embarrassment and difficulty for certain groups to be able to do that, but it's certainly a lot better than it was just five or 10 years ago uh, in the process. That's good to know. <laughs> Will it get better? I mean, can we get a handle on this or is it just going to get can we worse? Turn it around? Yeah. What we're trying to do at Honey Lake Clinic and some of the bigger organizations that I'm working with is how do we bring biblical truth and principles into the healing space? So if we can be successful at integrating faith and science more, I think we can turn this around. Being able to show with data that, hey, the things that we're doing at Honey Lake are working. Here's these transformed lives. Here's research that can happen, uh, whether it's graduate programs, PsyD programs, MD programs, doing the research mm. to show these things is going to be a significant effort to make that happen. The other side is trying to push Christians out of the service delivery space by, oh, you can't, if a person comes to you with same-sex attraction, you can't practice pro heterosexual principles with that person, or you'll lose your license, or you'll be unethical, you'll be disciplined by your licensing body. How do you get around that? You know, when people come to me, they're struggling, and uh, they're struggling either with same-sex attraction, with gender confusion issues, uh, but they're struggling with just everyday life and stress. So I try to meet them where they're at, say, hey, tell me about what you're struggling with, relationship issues, difficulties at work, depression, anxiety, struggling with your identity, you know, who you are, what, what's the meaning of life. And as we talk about that, I say, well, hey, tell me about earlier in life. Uh, you know, what was it like for you? Tell me about your experiences. Because whenever we're making decisions now, we have situations that come upon us. We're searching in our database. We have this incredible memory database of all these past experiences, things we've learned, uh, things we've taken in. And so now we're searching that, trying to sort out, well, what's information that helps me understand what's going on now and then help you make a good decision about this present situation? And so whenever I'm working with patients, we're trying to figure out, well, Tell me about those past, you know, I'm seeing you at frame 792 of your life. I can't interpret frame 792 of your life or help you figure out what you need to do in 793 and beyond unless I get context for 792 by, well, fill me in really? frames 1 to 791. So as we talk about those situations, their experiences, their hurts, their victories, their celebrations, their difficulties, the losses, the struggles, I start to get a better understanding for who they are they start to get a better understanding for who they are, and now they start to see cause and effect of these things. And now they start to see misinformation or lies or distorted perceptions they have of situations from these past experiences. As we start to correct that misinformation, we start to look at their, you know, take every thought captive, not just the conscious ones, but the unconscious ones. How do we take the unconscious thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? We find out well, which one are the wrong ones? How do we purge those? And how do we replace them with the truth? Now you start to make decisions as you sort of search your database. You start to call up more accurate information, so you're going to start to make more accurate decisions. And so those bigger issues of same-sex attraction or gender confusion, those things start to melt as we start to address those initial relational hurts, wounds, losses, struggles that they had in their life, and then the misinterpretations about who they are, who God is, relationships, love, sex, money, importance, approval. Satan wants to distort our view of everything that has to deal with relationship because he wants to keep us out of relationship with God. So the, least, the more distorted our understanding of relationships are, 
the more we're going to like, I don't want a relationship with God. I mean, I, I have trouble with relationships with people I can see, I can talk to, I can shake hands with. How in the world can I have a relationship with somebody I can't see, I can't touch, I can't even really hear that well? I've been hurt enough in relationships. No thanks. You know, you know um, I so appreciate your, your perspective on that because I've always said that the devil is trying to distract us from doing what God has called us to do. And of course, that's in relationship. I, I, I had a conversation with my wife recently um, about a complaint I received because a, a pastor had said that uh, women shouldn't be independent and I forget how he said it, but independent was the word. And I said to my wife, I don't think we're any of us are supposed to be independent. We're all supposed to be interrelated, maybe for a time period, maybe a weekend where you unplug from everybody. But in general, God does wants us in community, doesn't he? And this is where you're, you're trying to get to, which is, is phenomenal. Um, so I really appreciate your perspective on how the devil is trying to keep us away from a relationship with our creator, God, Savior, Redeemer, right? And our source of, of strength. To, you know, If we're called to die to self, we can't do it on our own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need the Holy Spirit's help. Exactly. Well, yeah. before we take a time out... Uh, I'm sure people are interested in the Honey Lake Center, maybe not for themselves, maybe for a child, grandchild, or a friend. Uh, How can they connect? Yeah, just go to honeylake.clinic, the website. There's a lot of great information there. There's testimonial videos that you see of uh, people that are active duty. We get people from uh, that are in the military, active duty, and have some trauma and have some difficulties and just how we've helped them turn around their lives. Uh, ministry leaders, we just had a pastor come preach again at our church who uh, had an opioid addiction. Was a football player? Yeah. He had opioid addiction that resurfaced from a motor vehicle accident that resurfaced his uh, past injuries and uh, came to our treatment center and just started to realize how distorted things had become in his life. He's clean and sober, back in the uh, pulpit and preaching, and he comes and preaches at, uh, at our church. Uh, Steve Ferris, great guy, uh, about every three months or so. Um, and we have everyday, you know, soccer moms that come, <laughs> ministry leaders that come, uh, you know, 13-year-olds, 15-year-old girls uh, that come. So you can look on the website. You can see all kind of testimonial videos. You can see some educational things of how we integrate so fluidly science and faith uh, in a very Christ-centered, biblical way. And you'll see just the grounds that God has blessed us with. It's just uh, a really relaxing. It was a hunting fishing resort, destination wedding place that we've been able to uh, change over into, uh, um, into a treatment center. So it's just very relaxing. One of our first patients uh, said, you know, like a snow globe, you shake it up and the snow sort of falls through the uh, globe. She called it the Honey Lake Snow Globe, that you sort of shake it up and it's the Flicks of the Holy Spirit that just covering, uh, you know, the grounds of the of the facility. So just a very relaxing spot. Well, let me ask you. Because there's a faith element into your ministry, and into your work, um, could you open a Honey Lake Center in a place like Illinois, Big Blue, woke Illinois, or do you have to go to a state like Florida? which is a little bit more open to these type of things. Well, you know, can I just jump in on that, Monty? Because, you know, as you came here to this office, you passed a huge state facility that's been closed for decades now. It was the Tinley Park Mental Health Facility. What have we done as a society to to turn our backs on those who really do need help? Well, you know, back in the 60s, there were more psychiatric hospital beds in the nation than there were all the other hospital beds combined. So if you combined every other hospital, all the number of hospital beds in 
in the country, there were more psychiatric beds than there were other total hospital beds. Now it's a paltry percentage of regular hospital beds that are there because we wanted to deinstitutionalize from the state hospitals and put people out in the community, which is nice to a certain extent, but we've really undermined the opportunity for people to access good behavioral health And instead, we're actually fostering high-potency THC marijuana. We're fostering gambling. Uh, We've now got gambling. You can't watch a football game without being saturated with gamble, 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 gamble. What are we doing? Quick fix. Microwave society. Quick fix. So uh, to get at your question, you know, we're JACO accredited. So JACO, which accredits all hospitals. So some people say, well, you know, you can't have a faith-based, you know, can't teach God, can't teach Jesus, um, and still be under sort of federal guidelines or national guidelines. And, and we do. We're JCO accredited. But they, and they come and they review us every few years. We just had their review a few months ago, and we passed with flying colors. And they were excited about how we integrate spirituality. You know, so much of medicine is starting to realize there's a mind-body connection, but there's also a spirit-mind-body yes. connection. So you walk into any you know, bookstore, and you, well, if there's bookstores still exist, but if you walk into a bookstore <laughs> that exists, um, the spirit, mind, body section is huge. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, people have a hard time whenever you use the word Jesus for spirit, the spiritual warfare. Oh, yeah. You know, and it, you, can, you can go have a spiritual awakening on a mountain, any other, any other spiritual... Uh, Bring your crystals along. Yeah, whatever it is. Um, but you put Just Jesus, meditate, you, you know? put Jesus or Bible into it, and all of a sudden, people get really nervous or really agitated. Uh, but we have a facility where that's what we do. We have praise and worship. We talk about Jesus, the Bible, and all we do every day. And uh, so we're state accredited for drug and alcohol. We're state accredited for mental health issues, and we're JCO accredited nationally for accreditation of hospitals and healthcare organizations. So we can open them up anywhere. Uh, God, I think, will bless as we sort of pursue these elements, but we do it the appropriate way. You know, we have uh, a willingness to work within the authority structure that he's given us, and we do it with appropriate diligence and acumen and expertise that he's given us, and he's raised us as professionals. We do it in a professional way, and we can do it in anywhere. Well, this is Illinois Family Spotlight. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Carl Benzio right after this. Our culture is telling men not to be men. It's a toxic war against masculinity. Join the Illinois Family Institute, Pastor Miles Holmes, Dr. Scott Lively, and best-selling author Nancy Piercy for the Recovering Biblical Manhood Worldview Conference, Saturday, March 2nd at the Village Church of Barrington. To attend, click events at IllinoisFamily.org. Society seems to punish men these days just for being men. Recovering biblical manhood. Strategies good for men and good for their families. We're not going to get a better group of men until we get a better group of fathers. Fathers who are willing to really stick it out. The IFI Recovering Biblical Manhood Worldview Conference. 10 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd at the Village Church of Barrington. Click events at IllinoisFamily.org. IllinoisFamily.org. With a one-minute look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Recently, the U.S. Department of Justice put pro-life protesters on trial for their role in a 2021 sit-in at an abortion facility in Tennessee. Each one face over a decade in prison now, as well as hefty fines. America's got a long history of civil disobedience and peaceful protests, but increasingly, the state has grown quite selective in what's tolerated and what's condemned, and now, apparently, convicted. 
federal animus toward pro-life activism is on the rise, as are examples of hostility from law enforcement. This is especially odd when compared to the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents who declined to comment about four men who were released after beating New York police officers. Look beyond the complexities of the immigration debate and the ethics of civil disobedience, this reflects our cultural mood in which the moral status of individuals are predetermined based on their group, not their behavior. The more that the state reflects this mood, the more elusive true justice will be. I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. Monty Larrick here along with David Smith. Yeah. He's the executive director of the Illinois Family Institute, Illinois Family Action. We're joined by Dr. Carl Benzio, a board-certified psychiatrist and uh, the co-founder and medical director of Honey Lake Clinic uh, down in Greenville, Florida. Uh, Dave, you have an interesting question. Okay. Well, you know, at the end of that last segment, the first segment, you, you mentioned that you have praise and worship at your center, your, your treatment center. And I know for me personally, if I'm discouraged by something, I just unplug from the world and I listen to praise and, and worship music. And it changes my demeanor, you might say. I've told friends, even a cousin who was dealing with some anxiety issues, said, put your mind on something else. Listen to praise and worship. And it really seems to help. So how, how does it work in your clinic or your, your yeah. treatment center? No, very important part. Uh, you know, all we do is worship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes I think as Christians, we sort of separate the singing is the worship part, and then there's the teaching. Well, it's Whenever we're putting him number one, oh, we're, we're what worshiping. What a great point. Right? Very good so, point. Oh, yes. you know, we're called to worship him. And in fact, in Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech thee, therefore, brothers, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's our spiritual act of worship. Our bodies is what acts out our decisions. So our decisions are really our spiritual act of worship. Because I could say, I could be singing, Jesus, you're my number one. Holy Spirit, you're magnificent. Come over me. But my decisions Monday through Saturday are really going to reveal what's really number one in my life. So is that why the, the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I say rejoice. That word always, always. Come on, Paul. Yep. Always. Every single decision we make is our communication to God. Yeah. So we can communicate verbally. We can communicate with our, uh, you know, through the word, um, through prayer. But our decisions is our most constant prevalent form of communication with God. So whenever worship in song... Um, there's the, obviously the words sort of give us some, hopefully they give us some biblical understanding of truth, principles, doctrines, um, helps orient us to who we are, who God is. Uh, to me, healthy worship is um, perceiving God accurately, really knowing who God is, and then responding accordingly. So when we perceive him accurately, well, it's easy to then respond when we perceive him clearly. Satan, the great deceiver, doesn't want us to perceive him accurately. So there's the words, there's the... He lies to us. He lies to us. He lies a lot. And so there's the words just helping us understand Bible doctrine. Um, music. Music itself is therapeutic. So there's just the, um, the the beat, the timing, the rhythm of it, the, the notes themselves. There's some music that gets us into a very romantic mood. There's some music that gets us into a very warlike mood. There's some music yeah. that's very celebratory. Some there's folks some... would point out Adolf Hitler used uh, music to rally the German troops. There's some music that's helpful for grieving, that has a, a somber tone to it. So music can be very therapeutic and is part of worship 
part of that therapy. And then there's just the physiological part of whenever you hum, you stimulate the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a calming nerve, gives calming messages to the brain. So there's just a physiological, and that's why people, when they meditate, yeah. they hum, hum. Oh, well, there you hum. go. There's a scientific. There's a set, yeah. There's, yeah. That's why so, sometimes if you just sort of massage your carotid artery just under your jawbone, or sometimes people put a cold you know, cloth around their neck, that sort of is... Is stimulating that vagus nerve and sending signals that are relaxing. So there's a bunch of different elements of it that people know or don't know about that um, you sort of come upon as you utilize a certain thing. You find, well, that's working for me, but well, what is, what's Why? the science Why? behind yeah, some of that? Yeah, that's and what's really the, cool. You know, what am I putting into my mind? I mean, you know, I know for me, whenever we're doing uh, uh, praise and worship at church, if I can see the words, it's much more impactful for me. I'm a visual person, Absolutely. so seeing the words and really seeing, the, you know, the name of Jesus or, um, you know, what is, what He's done, what the world is doing, or what He's doing in the world. Just being able to read it has much more impact rather than just hearing somebody else sing it. Sure. it just doesn't have as much impact. And you know, a lot of times, most times I'm in worship service at uh, at, at church, I, I have tears. I'm not usually a crying person, but it, it just affects me much deeper, especially whenever those words are up there on the wall. Amen. You mentioned the vagus nerve, Doc. Uh, <laughs> You're going to go to gambling? I'm going to go to gambling. <laughs> and you kind of touched on this, but I, I think we're headed for a gambling addiction crisis. crisis. Yep. And am I wrong? Well, now that it's illegal and everybody can do it, it's going to be hard to stop. I mean, people gamble a lot anyways, you know, very minorly. But now you can gamble pretty easily, legally, opening up your bank accounts with a whole, you know, with not much scrutiny or not much hiding or protecting them or accountability sort of overseeing those situations. And you can bet on anything. It's unbelievable for sporting events, especially what you can bet on the process of just who shows up first to the game right. kind of thing. Right. And so, or balls know, and strikes, all, right? All these things that really have no, um, there's no rhyme or reason to them. It's just total chance. Yep kind of process, let alone something that, you know, maybe you have a little bit of understanding about a particular player or a particular game or a particular strategy that might be played. You know, the odds makers, they're always going to try to maneuver things to make it, uh, you know, a net sum zero kind of process. Uh, but at least you might think yourself, I can out-trick them or I can have a little bit more savvy than, than they can. But um, it's going to be difficult for a large part of our society that can't afford to do things like this. Most people can't anyways. But you can have some people that, hey, I can go there. I can put limits. Just like I go to the movies and spend 30 bucks at the movies, I'm going to spend my 30 bucks here and have fun here. There's some people that are able to monitor that and restrict that. But there's a lot of people that can't. Once the ching, 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 and those circuits start to roll in that way and the neuroplasticity goes in that direction, they start to really struggle and they start to be the servant and that's the master amen well one of the things we wanted to do is when we have you come out here is how do we educate and equip the saints to know how to respond to this uh addictive um culture the degrading of our culture the the suicides the uh the depressions the all these the you know things that are afflicting families i think the biggest issue that we have is trying to figure out how to, how to be more psychologically minded and understand um, what's our development process as kids. How do kids yeah. develop? How do kids yeah. understand the world they live in? Um, you know, I know for me, um, the kids I grew up with, nobody ever really talked out loud about what was going on in their mind. So my parents didn't do that. Their parents didn't do that for them. Their parents before that didn't do that for them. So I think everybody sort of 
has this misunderstanding or a misconception that whenever they're 18, the heavens will open up, a big lightning bolt will come out of the sky, and everybody will be blessed with decision-making skills. It just happens like that, as opposed to, well, no, I'm yeah. going to have somebody talk out loud. Hey, look, here's the situation, and here was my initial perception of it, or here's another way I look at it. Or wow. Maybe that's why Scripture says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, right? Wisdom in a multitude of counselors. You know, in La- uh, Jesus... Um, Mary and Martha's, whether servants or them, come to him and say, hey, your buddy Lazarus is dying. It's like, wow, that's too bad. I can't get to him. Well, boy, he's going to die quick. Uh, I can't get there. They go back. They're bummed out. Jesus comes late. Lazarus is dead. He goes in, raises Lazarus from the dead. The next thing he says is to the people around Lazarus, unbind him. Now, what did he mean? Well, Lazarus had these death wrappings around his head, eyes, face, around his body. It restricted his vision, his perspective, his sight, restricted his movement, his walk, his freedom. And uh, we all have death wrappings, too. Whenever we're raised from death to life as new believers, believers in Christ, we don't get a brain transplant, right? We have the same brain that we started with. We were a new creation. We have same new potential. Same experiences we grew up with. All those experiences are still in our memory. Yep. It, you know, it would be nice if he washed our memories clean when he washes <laughs> our sin clean, but he doesn't wash our memories clean. Right. So Jesus tells those people around Lazarus, hey, unbind him because he has death wrappings, or we call it psychological baggage. We all have psychological baggage. So we all need, we were talking about relationships. We all need those relationships. We need to be in those relationship circles. That's why God puts us there because we need to help be part of the unbinding process of others, and we need to let others help unbind us. We certainly each have our own individual stewardship of that process that we're responsible for. Nobody else is responsible for my health or the decisions I make. But we need those help from others, and we need to help others in that process. And that's why he says, hey, unbind him. doesn't say to Lazarus, hey, unbind yourself. Kind of thing. Our lawmakers are talking about decriminalizing hard drugs, cocaine, heroin, you name it. Bad mistake, obviously. They've already legalized uh, high-potency marijuana. We're suggesting that they limit the THC content. Good idea? Cap it. Well, it should cap it at zero. Yeah. <laughs> One, well, yes, exactly. But Cap THC at zero. You know, THC is a very destructive, uh, you know, chemical. Um, there's CBD, in the marijuana plant, that is healthy. That is somewhat protective of the brain chemistry. Uh, but THC has gotten so potent in the marijuana plants that are produced to help produce more euphoria. And it's so destructive as far as psychoses, as far as suicidality, anxiety, uh, paranoia. Um, there's increase in crime, increase in violence, uh, increase in suicide. Um, Colorado, initially in those first couple years afterwards, they found that they were taking, they were costing them $5 for every $1 they were collecting in tax in the process. So we haven't found THC to be helpful or beneficial for any medical issue yet. Um, it is approved for uh, cancer-induced, uh, cancer chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. But there are other other medicinals that are as effective. So research hasn't shown it to be any better than anything else. And it's got a whole lot of downside to it. Yeah, like Marinol. So it's got a whole lot of downside to it that um, we don't even want to go to. But yet, unfortunately, we're seeing the ravages of it 
and now we're looking at psychedelics. Well, what are we going to do with psychedelics in the process? Haven't we learned anything from alcohol? First of all, alcohol should be illegal. I mean, in my view, it's it's the most toxic substance to our whole body, brain, and you know all our organs and everything in between. And there's only ten thousand people killed by drunk driving incidents every year. It's only ten thousand. So addictions is the number one killer in our society. Addictions, when you add it up, the CDC will say cardiovascular, but if you um, at about 700,000, but if you take about of those 700,000, 300,000 are have eating addictions. So there's obesity from overeating. If we take those 300,000 out, now we're down to 400,000 on the cardiovascular. Um, so that's 300,000 from obesity, about 100,000 from overdoses, 400,000 from nicotine, about 100,000 from alcohol. There's the different accidents, different crimes, different homicides. There's infections from IV drug abuse and AIDS and those. So that ends up being about 900,000 to 950,000, the highest, except for abortion. Abortion, we don't know, but annually. Wow. Annually. But we don't, we don't publicize that anywhere. You know, that, that's, it, it, you have to dig through all the data to find that information, whereas they easily put out CDC, you know, the CDC yeah. puts out cardiovascular at number one, cancer sure. at number two, and then COVID or accidental injuries is number three. But it's really addictions. And now we're trying to open the doors even more, whether it's, like you say, gambling, which process addiction has its ramifications and ripples, but all the different chemical addictions. Well, why would we even want to put things out there that are dangerous? You only get one brain. <laughs> I try to teach kids when I speak at schools. Okay. You only get one brain. Can I jump in? Real quick, I, I, that quote, sorry, you're going to have to edit this part out. I'm, blah, 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 blah. What do you think of social media, smartphones, and video games, especially for teenagers and younger? All those things are addictive processes that alter brain chemistry. Mm. You know, I think technology itself... Could be a tool for good. Could be a tool for good. There's yeah. many great things that happen. I mean, yeah. I, you know, we don't live close to our little granddaughter, so we're able to FaceTime with my daughter, Beautiful. my son-in-law and yes. daughter. You know, it's, it's great. So there's just like everything that God gave us, it's really meant to be in the gray area. Usually all of it isn't a good thing. None of it isn't a good thing, whether we talk about food, whether we talk about work, rest, sex, love, money. It's in the gray area. Technology in the gray area. Social media in the gray area. Unfortunately, we're not very good at at parsing it very well to figure out, well, where in the gray area for who, for who and on what day and at what time and what ratios. So we have something that gives us a little bit of stimulation. Those dopamine you know, pathways and reward pathways start to ding, 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 and well, we start to pursue it even more, and it becomes a very destructive process. There's a good reason, I think, that Apple and Facebook executives have said no to their children. Mm-hmm. To using that pro- their product that they're in charge of. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Should, should a ten-year-old have a smartphone? I think a ten-year-old should have a phone to communicate with their parents. I think to a, have dumb a, a dumb phone. A dumb phone. Now there's a person. There's a group that makes a smartphone yes. dummy. Yeah. Right. That can only call, but it looks like a smartphone. So to their peers, oh. they don't look like they're yes. uh, out of the loop. Right. They look like they're fitting in because they have. But their phone can't go on the internet. All it can do is make phone calls, but to their, their peers don't yes, know right. that. That's right. So they just assume, well, I, I have a smartphone too. That's right. Um, you know, I, to me, privileges to me are based on what are the skills of the kid. I think a lot of times we try to base skills based on their age, uh, but I think it's based on what's the skill level of the yeah. kid. Because whenever we give kids opportunity and privileges beyond their skills, we're setting them up for failure. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I do some things for radio stations. So I need a couple quick things here. <clears throat> our lawmakers are talking about, you brought it up, uh, 
using um, so-called magic mushrooms for post-traumatic stress disorder. Science is out on there on that, right? And But they make a good argument. What do you think? Well, psilocybin, which is in uh, shrooms, and uh, MDMA, um, ketamine are the three main psychedelics that they're looking at for, is there a medicinal perp, uh, opportunity for them? Now, these substances affect our brain chemistry in significant ways. They distort our ability to see things clearly. They allow the brain to be more malleable or to heighten the opportunity for neuroplasticity or brain change. That's a positive thing for people that have um, injured brain chemistry. We want to heal that, and we want to, how do we improve or quicken that rate? What we do at Honey Lake Clinic is we try to use psychological and spiritual interventions to get at that place of how do we help a person access those memories in the hippocampus? How do we help them push into that limbic space and the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex so we can get those circuits to uh, intertwine and integrate in a way that allows for us to look at these past traumatic experiences, process them in a healthier way, a more appropriate way, so that we can purge some of the detrimental impact that those traumatic experiences now have in our life. When used under incredible supervision and diligence, there could be a possibility that that could happen, just like we use opioids for pain management with a lot of supervision, a lot of oversight and accountability. We use uh, benzodiazepines, things like Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, with a lot of supervision, oversight, and precise accountability as to what exactly are we going to use them for. So I can see the possibility of being able to use some of these psychedelics for situations, but there's needs to be so much more research because there's so much more damaging and harmful effects of these particular substances, and they really need to be refined a lot more because the toxic effects on the brain and the distortion of reality that they have is substantial. I think we can get at the psycho-spiritual elements of these memories and that unconscious space that we're trying to help navigate a lot better through good therapy and engaging that and integrating that with biblical principles. And what we do at Honey Lake Clinic, I think, is very similar to what they do with MDMA or psilocybin, uh, sort of complemented psychotherapy. I would love to say that, hey, as a psychiatrist, I'm great at what I do. I'm an expert at what I do, and I treat people phenomenally, and that's why they're healed. There's part of that. God obviously has a huge impact in the process, but a big part of our healing remedy there is the community that we have. So we have this community of believers, most of them, some of them aren't believers, but they're spiritually open and and interested. And we have people that are hurting, that they come to a place that realizes there's, there's low judgment, there's low critique, there's low shame. We have staff that we're all, you know, we're all healing journeys in progress, and we have patients that are healing journeys in progress. Not that we blend and we blather with all our information. We're focused on the patients. But they see that everybody is willing to share, be transparent, be open, appreciate, honor, dignify, love on somebody, even though they might have had these atrocious perpetrator of incidents or victims of incidents that they're very embarrassed or stigmatized about. That healing environment that allows people to strip it down, 
to their foundation so we can see, well, what are really the cracks now? And how do we start to fill those cracks with good Jesus cement and psychological skills so now they can start to rebuild their life on? That, we were talking about relationships and the need for people to come in and unbind. That's are the relationships. So whenever they're in a group and they're talking about some of their struggles and somebody is able to help them, that's an incredible thing for them to open up and to hear somebody else help them. And for the person that's the helper, to, they thought they were worthless, terrible, a failure. They, you know, there's no meaning. There's no value to their life. But now they help appear. Boy, their lights turn on. It's like, wow, maybe there is value. Maybe there is purpose. Maybe God can use me. Maybe I can have impact. And so that reciprocation that goes on. And so when people come in there in day three, and there's somebody who's been there for 40 days and is sharing their story and has shared some you know, very vulnerable elements of their story, that three, that person there on day three is like, wow, this seems like a pretty safe place. They seem to trust their therapist and the other peers in the environment. Maybe I can share my story too, or maybe I can share my hurts. And so they allowed to drip some of their story on. And as they do, that, that psycho-spiritual place that MDMA, psilocybin, um, and those kind of psychedelics are trying to help a person get at, I think we can get it through a more naturalistic relational process, but we have to provide that environment for that to happen. In our secular space, when we leave out spirituality, we're not as engaged, we're not as bonded, as connected as brothers and sisters in Christ as we are in what we provide there at our Christian facility at Honey Lake Clinic. All right. Let me ask you this, um, just to close out. Uh, our lawmakers have approved uh, funding for mental health screenings for children in our government schools will start this fall. They would argue it maybe would be a help to counter school shootings, et cetera. But there's a downside to that, obviously. What do you think? I think anytime we can help people with awareness of, you know, what's going on inside their mind and how do we identify people with struggles earlier in the process so we can Obviously, we want to do awareness and prevention, but then how do we do early identification to be able to help remediate those process or correct or heal? Um, that's important. Trying to figure out, well, how are we identifying people? What are we using as our measurement system you know, for that process? And then what, what, is the, what is the healing services that we're going to implement or help them access? So right now, we have teachers that have no medical degree, no clinical degree, but they're diagnosing gender confusion, gender dysphoria, and then they're prescribing a treatment plan of, okay, we'll use different pronouns, and we'll allow them to dress this way, or we'll use a different name. And we're not going to tell, by the way, we're not going to tell their parents about these diagnosis or the treatment interventions. Or maybe we'll help them get hormone blocking um, drugs. And we'll start to refer them to chemical transitioning and surgical transitioning and getting in that pipeline. So, um, you know, we obviously want to have expertise, you know, involved in this process so people know their lanes and we help in the lanes. But I think we need to do a better job at helping especially in middle school where kids are very receptive uh, to things, be able to help teach them what are good conflict management skills, what are good emotion management skills, what are good listening skills, relationship skills. Because a lot of the violence that we see, or uh, especially the school shootings, are people that have been isolated and most often bullied in the situation. So we're usually not very good at identifying 
both the bullies and the bullier, you know, the victims of that bullying and trying to figure out, well, how do we address the situation? How do we come alongside, show compassion, empathy, and walk into their space so that we can hopefully avoid some of these very detrimental and tragic situations that, that happen either in a school situation or just tragically in their lives, you know, down the line, whether it's, you know, going through three or four marriages or domestic violence or sex trafficking or a whole bunch of different just terrible things that you don't read about in the paper all the time sure. that are, you know, just as catastrophic for people's lives. All right. Dr. Carl Benzio with the Honey Lake Center. Once again, people, someone out there who's listening to this podcast, they need help, and they could get that help at the Honey Lake Center. How do they do that? Go to the website, honeylake.clinic. On the website, you'll see a bunch of testimonials. You'll see a bunch of videos. You'll see what we do there, and there'll be a a number of uh, phone numbers to call to call our admissions office. We'd love to be able to help you, walk you through some situations that you have, um, whether it's you or a loved one. We know so many people in our community are struggling, even in the church. We often think the church is immune to these things, but we've, like I said, none of us got a brain transplant when we became saved. We're all works in the process. On the other side of glory, we'll all be fully healed, but in this, in this world, you know, we all need some help. And, you know, we have people that come to Honey Lake Clinic that are functioning at a 5 or a 10 out of 100, and they get to a 50 or 60. We have some people that are functioning at a 75, but they want to get more out of life. They want to even, you know, do what God has called them to do. And they come, and they go from 75 to 90 or 95. Well, we're you know, called to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, stir one another up. So um, thank exactly. you for your work, Doc. And this is I'm glad you're specializing in this um, because there's uh, no better Jesus cement than the Word of God. I, I, I caught that. I, I didn't catch that, that phrase, so that was fantastic. <laughs> well, for all you Christians out there that are uh, afraid of uh, psychiatry, um, if you look at Jesus, Jesus is the wonderful counselor and the great physician. That's right. Now, if you put those two disciplines together, the professional that you get is a psychiatrist. So Jesus is the perfect psychiatrist. So he started behavioral health revolution. When he came to earth, he came to set the captives free, to heal the brokenhearted, to bring us abundant life. Man was in a terrible situation with both Satan, Cosmos Diabolicus, and the world and the world system. And Jesus wanted to set his people free with this countercultural revolutionary message. He started a behavioral health revolution. I believe the, the church is called to reignite and continue Amen. what Jesus started. So that's what we're doing. Amen. Thank right. you for your work. Dr. Carl Benzio, thank you so much. Thank you, folks, for tuning in. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute. If you'd like to help us out, you can give us a call at 708-781-9328 or just go online, IllinoisFamily.org, click uh, Contribute or Donate, and you could help us out. Tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight, and until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.